Welcome to the Board Game Workshop. I'm your host, Chris Anderson. I uh, just wanted to give you a couple notes about this episode. It ended up having a couple of audio issues and going really long, so we split it into two episodes. So this will be part one, and at the end, we lost Dan's audio. So I just wanted to let you know that he is doing pre-orders for Matryoshka. If you go to LeddymanGames.com, you can check that out and enjoy the episode. Welcome to the Board Game Workshop. I'm your host, Chris Anderson. I am joined today by Carla from Weird Giraffe Games and Galactic Raptor Games, and Dan from Letterman Games and Galactic Raptor Games, and possibly another guest later if uh, they can make it to the recording. So, Carla and Dan, welcome to the show. Whoa, I'm so excited to be back on. Hey, thanks for having me. Yes, as longtime listeners know, you have both been guests multiple times. We just can't get enough of you. It's nice to have friends who are publishers when you're a game designer. Indeed. Or possibly a future publisher, which is kind of why I wanted to have you on and have this episode about starting a business, starting a board game business, starting a publishing business. I don't know how how we want to restrict it, but you've both started multiple publishing companies at this point. So why don't we just get right in, because I know we're on a a time crunch here. Um... So, same questions for both of you, but let's start with Carla, and why did you start a business? I started a business originally because I had made a game, and I found Jamie Stegmeyer's blog, and said to do that. So, (laughs) I mean, that's what I did. I'm really good at, you know, following a list of things and checking boxes. Um, I didn't actually know there was, like, signing until much later, but um, I am glad I went the publisher route. So, that was... uh... Super Hack Override? Yes, it was. So did you, like, at what point in the process did you start your business? Did you design first and then start the business to publish it? Or at, at what point did you actually incorporate? Um, it was a number of months afterwards. Like, uh, when I, like, the game was really good. I had a lot of fun with it. It was, like, getting finalized, and it was like, okay, what do we do next? Well, we have to find an artist and make a business and start looking at this Kickstarter thing. And So it's pretty much design was finished, quote-unquote finished, and basically once once you needed to give it to a publisher, you made a publisher to hand it off to? Yes. Cool. Uh, Dan, same question. When, when slash why did you start a business? So I started my business shortly before my first Kickstarter. Um... Before then, I kind of just did a DBA, and so I was launching my first game, and uh, not on launching it, I was just doing it through the Game Crafter, and so I was going to release my first game through the Game Crafter, and I just did a DBA, which is just working under a different title, Um, but it's still kind of like you're doing the work personally, it's not like a separate business, money separate from your personal money, and things of that nature. And so I did that first, where I um, published under the DBA. But shortly into that, I decided I was taking my game to Kickstarter, and that's when I decided I was going to found an LLC, which is a limited liability corporation, which is separate from the DBA. And so um, it was really when I was taking my game to kind of a mainstream audience and launching it on Kickstarter in a big public forum that I decided that um, launching a business was the right way to go with it. I knew from the start I wanted to self-publish. I love... Um, doing the business end of it as well. I've always wanted to kind of have my own company doing something and working for myself. And so um, it just felt natural to kind of 
handle the financials and run the business myself. So I knew from the start I wanted to do it, but I didn't really formally do it till I was getting ready for my first Kickstarter campaign. All right, that segues perfectly into the next question. Why, why should someone start a business? It's perfectly possible for you to design, produce, and sell a board game without a business, but there are certain dangers to that. So, uh, Carly, you want to go first? What are, what are the um, reasons you started a business? So, if you start a business, you separate all the finances and stuff like that. And if something crazy bad happens, like say somebody buys one of my games and their child fully eats it and dies, um, then they could, if you don't have a business, they could just sue you. Um, but if you have a business, they can only sue the business and take all the money from the business instead of like taking your house. So yeah, there's definitely that that level of safety. Uh, um, Dan, anything else to add to that, or is that pretty much the same reason? Um, well, well, yeah. So I mean, for me, founding the business was um, if I was going to publish and continue to do this, I wanted a brand that was kind of recognizable for my games and something that wasn't just me doing it. And so I, like she said, did that to found a company that had its own set of finances and had its own, um, you know, separate banking, separate credit, separate, um, pretty much, I mean, it's not separate taxes kind of, but it has its own schedule C where you're tracking everything. And I, I basically wanted that where all the finances were separate from my personal. And so that, yeah, that's exactly why I did it. Um, and with that, like making the finances separate makes doing taxes so much easier like if you just have a business credit card and just use all that then it's like you just look like when you're doing taxes for the business you just look there you don't have to like try to separate it all out at the end of the year for tax purposes yeah definitely making paperwork easier is a very useful thing especially if you're a one-person business and you're doing most of your own accounting even if you go to an accountant for your taxes you're still doing most of the paperwork and Paying designers, paying publishers, paying um, printers and shipping and all sorts of fun stuff that I am going to have to learn if I want to move into this. Um, so what was the process for starting a business? I know there's certain differences state to state and then obviously in other countries we're all U.S. based. So we're going to focus on that, I believe. But from what I've looked up, there is certain fees to starting a business. And I found out that Massachusetts, where I am, and Vermont are the two most expensive places in the country to start a business. So that's really cool. Um, so Dan, what are what's the process to starting a business? All right. Um, so for clarity's sake, I live in New York. So I'm going to say what I know about founding a business in New York. And this is founding an LLC in New York. And so the way you go about that is... Um, File, you have to file with the state um, articles of organization, which are basically saying how your company is uh, laid out, who the people involved in the company are. Uh, for Letterman Games, it was really simple because it's just me. So basically, I'm saying I'm the member of this company. I own 100% of this company, and I'm doing everything for this company. So um, the articles of organization were very easy because pretty much everything for the company falls under me. Once filing that in New York State, you have to publish advertisements in local newspapers. Um, they'll tell you which ones you have to do it to, and you basically have to run an ad that says an LLC was formed by this company um, at this address, and this is their purpose of business. And that's all it says, and it publishes in two different newspapers. I think we had to publish it for eight weeks straight. Um, I want to say I was so long ago, I, f I forget the length of time, and actually I might have had to publish in three newspapers. Um, once that's all done, I get a letter from the newspaper saying I published in them, and then I send that back to the state, and then I get the official certificate saying like that uh, my company is formed and I did everything I needed to do. 
Um, so that was the main paperwork for filing to become an LLC. Interesting. Uh, Carla, any differences? For you? You're in Alabama, right? Yes, uh, I'm in Alabama. I think it's cheaper um, than Dan had to do. Um, and I don't believe we had to do the newspaper thing. I feel like I do not remember that at all. It was just simple, like, file the paperwork. Yeah, so for New York, uh, I didn't say, but I think in total between publishing and the newspapers and the filing fees, it came to around $550, something of that nature, I want to say, to file the company. Interesting. I think the uh, last I looked, I think the fees for Massachusetts are 400 just for the fees. I don't know if there's any additional, like the newspaper thing or anything else you have to do. So it's that's mainly the thing that's holding me back because I got just a lot of general advice online is, you know, if you think about, if you're thinking about starting a business, you should. Like, it's obviously what you should do because it's so easy and cheap and beneficial. But then I'm looking at a $400 fee. I'm like, that's that's a good chunk of money if I'm not going to do anything with it yet. I felt the same way. And I would say um, for me, I went to the New York um, state website and looked it up. So I would go to, you know, the Commonwealth of Massachusetts uh, state uh, registration for LLCs or something of that nature. They probably have a similar thing on their, you know, main state site. And uh, hopefully they would give you all the information you need because uh, for New York, they basically guided you through this is how you, what you have to do. Then you publish and we'll tell you where to publish. And this is basically the free form letter you can use to publish if you don't want to make up your own thing and uh, they really guided me through it so um I'm, i would hope that your state would you know have guidelines as well yeah it's in their best interest to make it as simple as possible because they get the fees and the taxes from it so they want you to start as many businesses as you can all right so all all that out of your way you started your first businesses but uh luckily i have both of you and you also started a business together as galactic raptor so what were some of the differences of starting a business with someone else, especially in multiple states? And as a second business, was it easier knowing what to go through or was it harder because of the different elements in it? Uh, so we did it in Alabama and we did it just like we did our first business. Um, we did it in Alabama again because it was cheaper and we just filed all the paperwork. Um, our first business was actually between either three or four people. So um, it was about the, the same since there's three people in Galactic Raptor as well. So the process was just basically the same, and you already knew how to do it, so did you find it easier because you already knew? Yeah, I mean, we didn't have to figure anything out. It was just, like, go and do all the things that we've already done. I hate to say it, but I found it easier because Nick and Carla handled a lot of it because they had already done it previously with multiple people because, like I said, for mine, it was a single person, so I didn't really know how to handle the right things to fill in on the articles of organization for how we were handling it and luckily they covered it pretty well and um did a great job uh filling it all in for us and like they said since it was cheaper and um actually we decided that nick was going to be doing the taxes for the company and so it just made sense if he was doing the taxes to make it in the state that he was familiar with because if he doesn't know how to handle new york state taxes then why have him do the accounting um and so it really made sense for us to found it in alabama and i think uh, once it was filed, I mean, everything has gone smoothly since then, so no complaints here. That's definitely the easiest way to do it, have someone else do the work. Um, so what about, so that's starting it up and filing your paperwork, paying your fees. What about any sort of upkeep? Is there a yearly fee you have to pay? Are there certain things that you have to continue doing to remain a business? Do you ever like get kicked out of being a business, or can you just sit around with a company name as long as you pay for it? Um, so we do have to pay taxes every month. Which is, like, the worst is, like, you have to file taxes even if you don't sell anything that month. And you have to pay taxes on, well, I personally have to pay taxes if I sell things within Alabama. 
So if I sell something to somebody that's not in Alabama, that's not. I don't believe I pay taxes on that. Interesting. Anything different in New York, Dan? Um, so I will say, um, same thing. So that was one thing I was going to mention after. was So there's no upkeep. I don't have to pay anything yearly. Once I file, I'm, I'm filed. Um, but same thing, if you were selling in New York, we have to collect sales tax, and we have to file and pay sales tax per county that we sell in. So each county can have different rates. Um, but the first thing you have to do is file for a certificate of authority, which is with the state, which is allowing you the ability to collect sales tax. And so it's basically saying I'm filing for a certificate of authority, which means when I sell things, I'm going to collect sales tax, and then I'm going to pay that to the state. Um, so, so that's something I had to do. And the other thing you have to file for when you're doing all this and you get the paperwork for your LLC is submit it to the IRS uh, to get an EIN number. So you can get a federal EIN, which is like a social security code for businesses so that when you're doing your taxes, getting your bank accounts, getting your credit cards, you have a number to connect to the business that's not your social security number. Um, and the other thing I was going to mention, I think that was, oh, for the sales tax. So Carla, that's wild that you have to pay sales tax monthly here it used to when you start it has to be quarterly but after the first year or two if you don't pay a certain amount that's a threshold like if you don't pay ten thousand in sales taxes or something really high then they'll let you pay yearly so it took me a year and a half to get to that because i'm not paying a lot in sales tax right now um that now I just file yearly. So once a year in March, I have to I have to keep track of all the sales that I make and all the sales tax that I collect and then pay to the state then. Oh, that would be like so nice because I have to go in every month and file sales tax um, for at least Weird Draft games well, and uh, now Galactic Raptor games as well. And it's like, well, I didn't have any events this month, so... I paid nothing and I have to go through these forums and you have to do the state and the county like there's two different websites and I mean it's it doesn't take that long it's like 10 minutes but if you don't do it you have to pay a fee and it's like you're giving me a fee for not filling in that I didn't sell anything and uh, there's another thing with it that's super fun I guess is that if you go to a convention like say we're going to Origins soon. We had to file taxes or tax forms when you go to a convention that's out of state so you can sell there and collect sales tax. So if you go to like a couple conventions a year, you have to fill out like um, sales tax in Pennsylvania for going to PAX Unplugged. And um, I'm not sure about Gen Con. Um, some conventions do it weird, um, but yes, there's a lot of sales tax going on in a lot of different states and Luckily, I just put it into Square, and Square takes all the right amounts, and it's great. But, uh, yeah, speaking of dealing with other states and having to file paperwork, have you, either of you ever done anything out of the country, or have you just stayed in the states for as far as conventions and stuff go? I've just stayed in the states so far. That would seem like so much more hassle. Same. Like, just getting there and getting all the games there. Like, I can't drive there, so how would yes. I sell games? Somehow, I guess. Definitely more international issues once you get into that. But uh, So, speaking of international and the wonderful tariffs that everyone is talking about lately. So, you've incorporated your business. You're doing that. Um, You obviously have to do something. Produce games. Sell them, presumably, to make a profit is the goal. Um, So, what is is your process as a business? Uh, Either Galactic Raptor together or your individuals. If I recall correctly, you both started your businesses publishing your own game and then expanded out to publishing others 
And then with Galactic Raptor, you started off publishing other people's games. So what is, like, what's the process of running a board game publishing company? Which, I've heard you talk about this a lot on different shows, so maybe that's not particularly new information. But, like, I remember, I don't know if it was on my show earlier or someone else's show, but you were talking about moving to full-time publishing, and I think you said you had to do four games a year was, like, the the break-even point for going full-time. Is that still um, the case? Are you still working on that? So that's what I've read. Um, of, like, based on there's a number of, like, uh, Facebook groups and things like that, that if you can do four games a year, it will be, like, enough money. Um, with all the tariffs and stuff that are going on, I am definitely, like, watching out and seeing if I need to, like, cut back. Like, right now I'm doing two games a year. Um, if... I can even do that. Like, if it should just be one game a year to deal with the fact that there's tariffs and, you know, there'll just be less games around. The tariffs are hard. So is that something that you're looking into and worrying about? Because they haven't passed yet, as far as I know, right? Yes, they haven't passed. And if they do pass, people are saying 25%. But I've also read that it could be 10 to 25%. And I really hope that the tariffs are actually just 10%. So how tariffs work... It is definitely not that the Chinese pay taxes. Um, What happens is that if you bring things that have been manufactured in China into the U.S., you have to pay um, either some amount, like 10 or 25 percent, based on whatever the tariff is, on the cost of um, actually making the thing and um, the freight. So that would increase, like, the base cost of the game. How you can get around that is potentially just not manufacturing in China, um, going somewhere else, not warehousing in the U.S. Um, that could be a thing. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of different things that I'm looking into and considering. Like maybe I will go to Europe because Europe does have good board gaming manufacturing, though it is more expensive. Um, or just maybe like paying more for Chinese manufacturing and maybe making the quality less. Um, My current quality of game is way more than it actually needs to be. So, like, if I went down in quality, like, nobody would really be like, oh, this is poor quality. It'd be like, oh, yeah, this is a board game. It's regular quality. So that's an option. That's that thing. The the tariffs raise the price for shipping in from China, but... China being the cheapest place to produce, is it any different? Like, publishing or um, printing in the U.S. is more expensive, so So is is it going to be any different? One cool thing is if if it comes out to, like, equal between the European um, manufacturing and China, it might be better to manufacture in Europe, because if you manufacture in Europe, then you can immediately ship to backers in Europe, and you don't have to pay another VAT tax, I don't believe. Um, Because um, for EU-friendly shipping, if you manufacture in China, you have to ship a freight to um, the EU. Um, And that costs money. Like, having um, shipping or, like, putting something on two different boats, one to the U.S. and one to the EU, costs more than if you just had, you know, one shipment to one location. So you could save money if you manufactured in Europe by only sending one boat to the U.S. um, and also... I'm not sure if you would pay VAT taxes because it's already in the EU, so you could just ship out and backers could get things like 
two or three months before they do, especially EU backers, because um, usually, like, sometimes what people do is they ship to the U.S., and then they go U.S. to Europe, which that each boat ride could take, like, a month or two. And then they get to a fulfillment center, and then they ship out. But if it ships out, like, almost immediately after manufacturing, backers could have games, like, I don't know, four months after the Kickstarter ends? Wow. So... Maybe that would be okay, because also, um, the shipping stuff in the EU is so expensive. So expensive. Everything is increasing in price, so that's why, like, I'm thinking about all these different things. Yeah, definitely. Dan, any, anything to add on the tariffs, or? No, she covered a lot of it, so I really, um, I don't have too much to add, just, yeah, that we're worried and we're keeping an eye on it, just because we don't know how it's going to affect us yet, and if it's going to go through, when it's going to go through, and for exactly how much, so, you know, there's not a whole lot we can do other than be very cautious leading up to it. Now, from what I've been reading, it seems the people that are most worried about it are people that have already, um, what do you call it, funded on Kickstarter, but haven't produced yet, or in the process of producing, because they're going to get hit with the tariffs, for the completed game that they yeah. estimated prices for before the tariffs were put into place. So that's a, that can be a very big hit. And especially for smaller companies like almost every board game company, it can be uh, devastating. Well, it's it's really devastating because like the first couple games, like what I did was I priced them so I wouldn't make any money. I just wanted to like get my name out there and to get people playing my games. I was not in it for any sort of profit. So if people do that and suddenly they have to pay like an extra $2 per game and there's 800 backers, like, I mean, that doesn't sound like a lot of money, but that means they have to pay that and anything you messed up also comes out of pocket. Um, like if you did that and also the shipment charges increased, like there's almost always something that I miss when like this all happens, like. Like, even though I've done something like five campaigns, there is some cost where it's like, oh, oh, I probably should have known that that was going to happen, but learning experience, I know now. So it's going to be really hard for anyone new getting in, because if you mess up, then that's just it. You're done. Yeah, definitely. So knowing what you know now, you've both had business for several years now. Uh, would you start a business today if you hadn't, if you didn't already have any? I would say yes. We just found a Galactic Raptor last year, so yeah, we um, we founded our businesses and we liked it so much we did it again. I'd also agree. Like I really like like the person I've become through running a business. Um, when you are a publisher, you have to do a lot of things that, like being a designer, you don't have to do. Like I had to go and work my own con booth and be at at the booth for you know however long eight hours or something a day and be there and be just you know super excited um but i'm also like a super introvert and like talking to like a new person every two to five minutes is really hard um but like you can do that if you practice enough like if you push yourself like you can do something like be on a podcast like before i started the business i would have never even thought that I would be like on a podcast or on, I don't know, whatever the number I've been on so far. And I've gotten a lot better at talking and interacting with people and just learned a lot. So if I could go back, I wish I could like send a list of don't do all these things, um, which because that would be great to like not have this whole like 
I've I've had a business since like 2016, and it feels like at least every week I learn something through failing. So if I could just like take back all those failures, there'd be different failures, but maybe there'd be less. Like if I could just learn it without the failure. Well, that's why we have this podcast, so other people like me can learn. Uh, so you mentioned uh, running a booth at conventions. So I know Dan, you gotta get going soon. So why don't you answer this one first? But um, so what's the process of getting into conventions as a publisher? I know booth prices, especially for the big ones, can be uh, much more expensive than I ever imagined. But um, so what conventions do you do as a publisher and what do you do for them? Um, so, yeah, you you basically have to fill out forms months and months in advance and pay fees in advance to reserve a booth. And like you said, the, the prices can be very high, so I actually didn't even consider it till I had enough titles I felt like warranted selling at a booth because uh, obviously I find all my titles are very different and I can usually, if there's someone coming to my booth, I have different games that tailor to different tastes now. So it's most people who come by the booth, I can find something they might be interested in. Um, but, you know, back when I had one game and it was more, say, a family weight game, if you're not looking for that, I'm going to have a lot of people just passing by. So I waited till I was actually um, making enough games and uh, making enough popular games that it was worth selling at conventions. Um, so this year... I've gone to Breakout Con. I had a booth there. I'm going to Origins. Uh, I'm not going to, but uh, Cassie Friedman, who's been doing freelance work for me, is doing demos at Dice Tower Con and Gen Con. And then I'm hoping to go to PAX Unplugged, but it really depends on my family schedule with everything we've been doing this year. So, um, And then I do a lot of local cons. Local cons are an easy one that I always try to do. Cool. And Dan, if you have to get going, you want to just do your um, contact info and any projects you're working on? Sure. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me on. Yeah. I have to cut it short. We have so many things going on between our campaigns and my family life that <laughs> I have to make a quick night, but um, most people can find me. I'm very accessible on Facebook and Twitter. Um, you can just find me Letterman games, L E T I M A N games. Um, and it's at Letterman games on Twitter and facebook.com slash Letterman games. People can feel free to reach out to me any way they feel like. Um, we have, Matryoshka, which is live on Kickstarter now, which we're localizing from White Goblin Games in the Netherlands. And then I have a big campaign, like a choose-your-own-adventure-style campaign-driven encounter game, kind of like Descent or Gloomhaven-style, um, that's inspired by Final Fantasy Tactics. So it's a very, very big game, and that's coming July, end of July. So we have a couple big things on the horizon, and uh, it's, yeah, it's very exciting. What's the uh, end date for Matryoshka? Because this, be, this won't be out for about two weeks. Oh, well, then Metroshka will be over by then. It ends in six days, uh, seven days, really. So, but, uh, okay, looking back, we just funded Matryoshka. It's great, and thank you for all of you who supported us. And, uh, yeah, no, th thanks again for having me on. Yeah, thanks for coming on and giving us some of your very limited time. Yeah, so glad to actually talk to you. Okay, so conventions. Um, I forget everything that you asked, but you asked um, about just prices? What's the, what's the process that you go through as a publisher for... Um, getting a booth at a convention, the fees, like Dan said, you have to apply months in advance and pay months in advance, and it's quite expensive. And it's especially the big ones. You're like getting just a ten by ten space is the smallest you can usually get, I think, right? Or is it five by five? Uh, ten by ten. Well, if okay. you want a booth, I think you can get like a demo table for cheaper, but that's like somewhere else, and you can't sell anything. So yes, the smallest you can usually sell at is a ten by ten. Oh, but when I was at Origins last year, we actually had a 10 by 8, which I did not know was a 10 by 8. 
which none of the people in our row knew were 10 by 8s. So I don't know if you can imagine. So is that the width was 8? So all the oh, tables yeah. were shorter than you expected? Well, um, so when you go to a convention, you can pay lots of money to, to borrow tables and electricity and stuff like that. Carpet. But this costs a lot of money, okay? Like, more than you would think. Like, last year at, um, what, it was PAX Unplugged? Some people did not bring tables, and they were going to rent them, and they looked at the prices, and they were like, I can just go to Walmart and buy a table for cheaper, so I'm going to do that. Well, I've heard lots of stories. Some people just, because of the ridiculous rental prices for chairs and stuff, just going to a store, buying the chairs, and then just giving them away or donating them or throwing them away, because it's cheaper to buy a chair and throw it away than to rent a chair. Yeah, which does not make any sense because the stuff you can buy and or the stuff you can rent isn't like it isn't great. Like it isn't like, "Oh, this is a fantastic chair that is noticeably <laughs> better than other chairs." It's like that's a chair. It's the same or something. Like I'm not a chair master, so like <laughs> you know, they all chairs like as long as I can sit in them and it doesn't like feel, make me feel like dying, it's a great chair, okay? Um, so there's that. So, convention stuff. Like, you talked about, like, the price to go to a convention. Um, there's, like, usually 10 by 10 booths, like, at Origins, PAX Unplugged, Gen Con, are all around, like, a little less than $1,000. Um, but if you get a 20 by 10, it's a little bit cheaper depending on, like, the type of booth. So for this Origins, I got a 10 by 10 regular booth, and then I got a 10 by 10 demo booth where I can't make any sales out of the demo booth. So all the sales have to be on one half of my space, but the other half is a little bit cheaper. So you can do stuff like that to make it so cheaper. It's two 10 by 10 booths next to each other, and you're only allowed to sell in one of them? Yes. That's a really strange restriction, but I, I guess it makes sense. I don't know if they actually, like, make sure that that's happening or make you designate where it's happening, but Origins is also kind of weird where they are very particular about your booths and stuff. Like, they do not want to see cardboard anywhere. So you're going to bring your games and they come in cardboard boxes and you want to keep the cardboard boxes because you bring a lot of games, you know, just in case, like, somebody goes crazy and buys all of them or something. Um, you always bring extras, um, so you have to, like, put the, uh, cardboard boxes, like, either hide them somehow or, like, bring them back to your hotel or car or something to hide them, because, like, we got, like, really yelled at for that. And we also, um, Origins also had this thing where you can't see the table legs, okay? Um, because that's unprofessional to see that tables have legs, um. When I want to give away the secrets. <laughs> I don't know. I do not make the rules. So you have to make sure you have tablecloths as well. And if you get, like, the nice fancy ones that you can, like, carry around all the time, that's an extra cost. Mine were, like, 16 or $20 each. Like, it's not that much. But if you consider that you have to get all your tables, get all your tablecloths, flooring. Um, I have, like, some cool flooring, so it was more expensive. It was, like, $200 or something to get, like, giraffe flooring. But you definitely need flooring because if you don't have it, like, um, I think it was my first convention where I didn't have it. And then I felt like I was going to die. Like, standing on just concrete for eight hours 
four days in a row? Like, I don't know. I am not, like, in my 20s anymore. People that don't stand for a long time don't understand how actually painful standing can be on different surfaces. Like, the the flooring really, really matters. Well, yeah, like, if you have, like, the good flooring, like, standing, it's not that hard. But if you have, like, just no flooring, it's like, whoa, I'm going to die. And also, we didn't bring, like, extra chairs. We had just, like, one step stool. So I remember, like, that first con where, like, we alternated sitting on the step stool because, like, that's what we had. Um, I learned a lot, as I said before. That's how they can charge such prices for renting a chair. Yes. You come through halfway through the con and, like, want to rent a chair now? And you're like, yes, I just need anywhere to sit. Anywhere, and I will give you whatever money. And, (laughs) yeah, that's, that's it. But you also need things like shirts. Um, and also, so at my booths, I have demos going and I have different people that are helping out. Um, when I have a 20 by 10 booth, I have at least four people helping out. So I have to get helpers to do that. And I usually like either pay for, like I give them games or parts of hotels or their badges. So you have to like buy all those things too. You also have to put in the time to train all the people that are helping you and giving them like, well, I guess you don't have to give them water and snacks and stuff. But if you're like a pretty good human being, you probably want your booth staff to like at least be hydrated so that they can keep like talking at people. Otherwise, their demos are going to get really bad if they can't talk. Um, And also things like cough drops. So you need cough drops for like nine people over four days, which wouldn't normally be a lot but like if all those people are talking the entire time so you also can't get the all these people into one hotel room i think at pax we had three hotel rooms last year um but yeah and then if you're going to drive back and forth there's gas and getting to the con like we always drive from our house with our van because we have a lot of games and we want to bring them but this year for Origins, we had our game still at Quartermaster because they went directly to Quartermaster. They never came to our house. So Quartermaster is going to ship some games to Origins, which again costs money. And then we're going to get them. Oh, what other things cost money for a con? Like, it dribbling. just, it's a lot. Like, well, you're still talking, like, um, in addition to the convention itself, it's essentially while it's you know a job it's a vacation so you're paying for the hotel stays you're paying for meals out because you don't i mean depending on where you stay if you get like a b&b or something you could have a kitchen but even then you have to stock up the kitchen so there's just the price of living gets more expensive when you're away from home and you probably should buy food for your helpers as well i always do like a big meal thing where people can like get whatever food they want and usually they get all the food that they want which is fine but it's just like it's It's another cost on top of everything like not only like do like all these helpers they are great and they do great work and it's awesome but you can't just go in and think like oh yeah this helper is completely free like there's a lot of costs associated to trying to like just get people to demo your game I mean, you could try to demo your game, but then you also can't be there to, like, answer other people's questions and deal with other things. Like, um, for Weird Draft games, the people that aren't paid are usually me, um, my partner Nick, and his mother Annette. So there's three people, like, I mean, we need hotels and food and stuff, but we don't need other compensation. We are just there working. Yeah. So from what I've heard from 
other people talking about going to conventions as, especially as a small publisher. I'm sure it's different for the larger publishers that get like the massive anchor spot and people wrapped around the entire building waiting for their games and they have employees. But um, usually the price of a booth and like all the stuff you're talking about is more than you're going to make in games. And if you're lucky, you're going to break even. But it actually ends up costing you money. And it's less of a sales opportunity, more of a marketing opportunity, because you're you're there at a, especially a big convention like Origins or Gen Con. You're in front of a lot of gamers. People are getting your new stuff right away and talking about it and sharing it. So, um, as far as your experience with cons, do you? I mean, if you want to go into it, I know it's financial. So, do you usually break even? Is it a profit thing, or are you running at a loss as just a marketing opportunity? So it really depends. I've never run, like, the pure costs of it. Um, I've mainly done it based on, like, hotels, um, badges, and um, the actual um, booth. That doesn't include, like, all the prep work, like, making sure you have bags and business cards and flooring and tables and, oh, every helper needs to have a shirt. That's not including that, and that's also not including the fact that, you know, these games didn't magically appear. (laughs) They cost money to both make and get into, um, yeah, into the convention somehow. And the gas that it took to get there and the food that we have to eat there. Because, like, well, when I'm home, I normally cook. And cooking is so much cheaper than going and going into Pennsylvania and just eating food anywhere, I would imagine. So, yes, if you're going to a convention, don't think, oh, I'm going to make thousands of dollars, like... Yeah. Yeah. So even if you're not making a profit, is do you still find it's worth it to get your game out there, get your brand out there especially, and get FaceTime with your audience slash consumers? I think so. I'm not sure that I've been doing it long enough to actually know. Because it's the, the long game. So this Origins will be the first convention that I'll, I'll have been there before and had a booth. So hopefully people will go like, oh yeah, I know them. They're a board game company. Like they'll recognize the logo. They'll know something about us. So they'll be more likely to buy our stuff, I think. Or I hope. Um, That's like the idea is like, you are a legitimate company. You have a booth. People know you, the whole recognition thing. Um, If they did buy a game last time and they liked it, oh, they might come back and buy, you know, whatever new thing that we have this year, which would be awesome. You have your third game produced, right? Fire in the Library, and then uh, Dreams of Tomorrow is in production? Yes. And Big Easy Busking is... Is it still on Kickstarter or did it just finish? It is still on Kickstarter for 13 days, but it might be done by the time this podcast airs. It will just end it a couple days earlier. But, again, I'm sure you're having pre-orders on the site, right? Yes. Um, so, but, like, so last year, you... Last Origins, you didn't even have Stellar Leap produced yet, right? I did. We sold a number of copies Last Origins. Really? Have I had yep. it that long? I wow. mean, I don't know. Um, it's probably like it's really hard to know how long Kickstarters have been on your shelf. But yeah, most likely it, it, you've it had it for difficult. like almost a year. Oh wow. Okay, I gotta play more games. I don't get to these things nearly often enough. Maybe because I'm too busy designing and doing podcasts and trying to work a real job. But um. So, life. Yeah, life. Who needs that? Um, so, all this other stuff is the prices, but why 
why do you enjoy having a company? I assume you enjoy having a company. You seem to continue doing it. But so what, what brings you joy about being a publisher instead of just a designer and submitting to other publishers or working with another company? Like why, why do you continue to do it, I guess, is the, the main question there. Well, in addition to all the learning and growing as a person, I get to make decisions, okay? Like, I get to make the games that I want to make that I think should be made. Um, That's why I signed my first game, Fire in the Library. It was because, um, like, Tony Miller was going around and pitching to people, and they kept saying, like, oh, this is a great game, but I have a pressure luck game. And I was like, hey, Tony, this game deserves to be made, and I'll make it. And that's, what, like, how I got into the whole signing business, I guess. But I got to make that game, and I got to make it super colorful and beautiful and high quality, and I think it's awesome. And the same thing with my other games. Like, I made Stellar Leap, and I made these cool, funky meeple shapes, because I love funky meeples and aliens that aren't humanoid, so I made those things. And then I get to, like, make choices. Like, in Dreams of Tomorrow, there's only women, because why not? There's so many games that have only men, so, I mean one or two that have only women they can be made too and it's also like um, my games all have a certain certain aesthetic like if you go to my booth you will see that there's so much color because why not add color to board games like in my experience it just like making it colorful just increases um the fun to it like oh it's like fun to play but it's also nice to look at as well like I get to do the things I want to do and make the product and be really proud because, like, this is the product that I put all my time and energy into and I was successful and here, look at this box. It's just amazing. So do you think that is, like, the one of the main tenets of your brand as Weird Giraffe is colorful games? Because I know you put a lot of effort into the artwork for all of your games and it's really been a selling point for a lot of them. So is, mm-hmm. that's, that's one well, of your main tenets? So there's a lot of main tenants. Um, <laughs> they can't I all mean, be main tenants. I mean, um, for all my games, I like to make them really easy to learn, but still have depth, um, really accessible, like low cognitive load, even though they might require a lot of strategy, you know, color, diverse when I can, you know, um, really like affordable. Like my most expensive game is Star Leap, which is $49. But the other games, like Super Hack is 12 and Fire in the Library is 29 Like, you should be able to afford these games, but they should give you, like, a lot in a small box. So is that something that, especially now that you're, like, taking in other designers' games and scouting, is that something you keep in mind from the beginning? Like, how can I add art to this? Is this going to fit in the type of games I want? Oh, for sure, yes. Like... I really want to make sure, like, that I can make these games fit into my entire line. Like, I want it to be a line. Like, I want you to be able to go, like, okay, I liked Fire in the Library, and I'm looking for something with a rondelle. Okay, Dreams of Tomorrow will make you so happy. I want, like, if you like one of my games, you'll probably like the other, another one of them. Okay, so, and another thing, um, I really love being a publisher is that I get to make, like, crazy themes like dreams of tomorrow you're a dream engineer in the future and you're sending dreams into the past to change your reality like big easy busking is there another game that's based in new orleans with street musicians like 
I don't know. I know that there's other games that are kind of based in New Orleans, but it's not like super like this is a New Orleans game. Like I get to make games that are different and unique and hopefully other people are like, whoa, it's not a game about farming. I really want to see what that is. Ah, but you can do farming in New Orleans, can't you? Yeah, but it won't be like colorful. It'll be like, (laughs) well, this is corn. (laughs) Why don't we wrap this up and let's just end it with contact info and if you want to highlight any of your projects that are happening now or soon. I am Carla from Weird Draft Games and Galactic Raptor Games. You can reach out to me by email at contact at weirddraftgames.com. I love talking about board games or whatever the thing is that you like that's, well, if it's about board games, I will probably enjoy it. So, yes, feel free to email me. I'm also on Twitter at Weird Giraffes. I have Facebook, Weird Draft Games. And um, Big Easy Busking is either on Kickstarter, and this is the final day, or it's just ended, but don't worry, there'll be pre-orders um, that will be slightly different in some way. Probably. I don't know. It's not there that time yet. But it is for you that are listening to this. Um, anyway, Big Easy Busking, you are a street musician in New Orleans, and you are trying to win it big um, by playing your best songs um, to the right crowds. Um, it's an area control game for one to five players that plays in about 45 minutes. Um, and if any of those things sound interesting, I'd highly recommend checking it out because we are funded and we are reaching stretch goals. And I'd really appreciate it if you just went to the page and told me what you thought about it. So yes, um, check out Big Easy Busking. You can get to it by going to weirddraftgames.com slash B-E-B. Or there's also a link, just it'll be in our header to um, go directly to the Kickstarter page. And I'm sure I'll remember to put it in the show notes, too. Uh, any future projects that you can talk about, or just focusing um, on Big Easy Busking right now? Just focusing on Big Easy Busking right now. Awesome. Well, thank you for coming on the show, and thank you to Dan for joining us earlier. And hopefully this gives some information to anyone looking to start a business, some things to watch out for, some things to definitely make sure you do. And, yeah, thanks for listening. That's all for this episode. Board Game Workshop is a member of the Indie Game Report. You can check out their reviews and interviews at theindiegamereport.com. Thank you to all of our Patreon supporters, especially our inventor-level supporters. Chris Turner, Vegan Al, Brad Bachelor, Roscoe Schock, Boss Kotick, and Corey Mudderman. If you'd like to support the show, go to patreon.com slash theboardgameworkshop. You can follow the show on Twitter at the BG Workshop and on Facebook at the Board Game Workshop. Join the show's Discord channel to discuss episodes. You can call the show's Google Voice number at 725-222-8249 and leave a question or contributor segment for a future episode. You can get the links for these and all show notes at theboardgameworkshop.com. Thanks for listening.